third lecture for the Forge program this year, and we are diving into the doctrine of the Trinity, Trinitarianism. And so I could not be more excited to talk about this topic today. And it's really exciting that we get to do this in this format. I've never done it in this format before. And so we're going to learn together. You may be watching this via video. Uh, if so, then you'll get to enjoy the slides, which I'll, I'll share my screen and you'll be able to see those slides as we roll through them. If you're listening to it via audio, we've posted the slides in a Google Drive folder and we've given you access to that through a public link so that you can look at the slides either later or while you're listening to the audio of it. Um, we're gonna record it in three parts. This is part one of that lecture. So when we release the digital recordings of the, either the videos, the, the, the audio, it'll be a lecture in you know two to three parts. We, that way it's not just one block that you have to go and then find your time. And we really encourage you to listen to them in part. So I, if you're gonna listen to part one or watch part one, I'd watch it all the way through if you can. And then maybe then watch part two or part three. I wouldn't try to kind of splice up the sections if you can. I'd try to hit every section directly. And so as we jump in, I want to give you the main point. And I'm always going to do this. I'm going to give you a main point for the, for the lecture. And I'm going to share my screen so that you can see the slides. Main point for tonight is this. The most important question that any of us will ever answer is what do we love? <laughs> That's the most important question that any of us will ever answer is what do we love? And the aim of Christian discipleship is love and worship of the triune God. The aim of Christian discipleship is love and worship of the triune God. That's our goal as Christians is to worship God for who he is and not who we might imagine him to be. Now, let me maybe help you think through this. Let's imagine that um, I begin to describe my wife and I tell you, you know, my wife, you know, her name is Sheila and um, she's six foot 10 and uh, she's a former bodybuilder. Uh, she has red hair and she's from Slovenia. Now, if you heard that description, anyone who actually knows my wife would know that is not a faithful description of her, right? And if I pretended in a group of people um, that, to describe my wife in that way, anyone who knew my wife would know that I wasn't describing her accurately. I wasn't describing her faithfully. And that would probably cause some concern because we seek to know best what we desire to love most. And uh, as my friend and colleague has famously said, the, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. Uh, and I think that's very accurate. And so when we think about why should we spend the time uh, faithfully describing, faithfully coming to an accurate knowledge of who God is, who he's revealed himself to be, why would we spend all that time doing that? Well, we would do that because we love him and we want to love him. And Trinitarianism is, is some heavy lifting. I'll be honest with you. Some of the stuff that we're going to talk about in this lecture, these are heavyweights. Okay, this doctrine is, is tough to study and tough to understand, and we're going to spend some time uh, trying to walk through it together. But it is going to kind of work some theological muscle for us. It's going to form us, and that the goal, again, is deeper worship, deeper mission, and deeper obedience, right? If the aim of Christian discipleship is love and worship of the triune God, then we need to know who this triune God is. So maybe to kind of fuel that fire for you, let me give you a quote from Julian of Norwich, a female theologian of the medieval period. This is what Julian said about the Trinity. The Trinity filled me full of heartfelt joy. And I knew that all eternity was like this for those who attain heaven. For the Trinity is God and God the Trinity. 
The Trinity is our maker and keeper, our eternal lover, joy and bliss, all through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, when you think about what Julian um, has come to realize through her study of the Trinity, you realize that lo and behold, this theologian has come to love God more because of consideration of who God is as Trinity, as triune. Um, Augustine, kind of to leaven out the, I guess, the risk reward here, if the reward is this great love, Augustine is quick to point out, oh, I don't have the quote on here. don't have the quote on this slide. Anyways, Augustine says this, nowhere is a mistake more dangerous or the search more laborious or the discovery more advantageous. <laughs> I mean, that is, I mean, from the great African Bishop Augustine, that is just some straight shooting right there. You know what I'm saying? Nowhere is a mistake more dangerous or the search more laborious or the discovery more advantageous. Uh, he's right. It's very, it's very easy to make a mistake in doing Trinitarian theology and you hear it all the time. Um, it is very hard to inquire or study the doctrine of the Trinity and the discovery is worth it. You know, when we come to understand who God is, uh, who he has revealed himself to be, it is immensely valuable for us. And so tonight we're going to study and contemplate the Trinity because we want to seek happiness and happiness is rooted in no knowing God. But the study of the Trinity is very tricky. So the main point, again, is the most important question that any of us will ever ask is what do we love? And the aim of Christian discipleship is love and worship of the triune God. So if we're going to start on talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, we got to start with a definition. So we need to work on defining what does Trinity mean. And so I'm going to put this up for you so that you can see it. This is the definition of the Trinity that we will use. And let me say it like this. This definition of the Trinity is is the definition of the trinity i mean uh i hope that doesn't seem too forward it's not mine it, this is kind of a distillation it's a synthesis of how the church has defined the trinity so there's a lot you could say about god as triune or the doctrine of the trinity but what you must say is this there's some stuff that we'll talk about over the course of the year where we're like yeah you know scholars can disagree or maybe caroline and i disagree with how to phrase this here, there's no room for disagreement. This is one of those areas where this is a solid block and it can't be broken. So here we go. God eternally exists as one essence in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God, yet there is one God. So let me repeat that again for those who are listening. God eternally exists as one essence in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God, and yet there is one God. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. God eternally exists as one essence. Okay, so here we begin with unity of essence. That word essence uh, sometimes substance is the word that's used there. The Greek word behind it in the early church would have been usia. Okay. One substance, one essence. God eternally exists as one substance, one essence in three distinct persons. The Greek word here would have been hypostasis or hypostasis or upostasis, depending on where you read it and how you hear it pronounced. But this, uh, this is incredibly important because this is the distinction of persons. 
okay? So God eternally exists as one essence in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God, yet there is one God. This is the unity of divine action, or what we might call the doctrine of inseparable operations. Now, I know. <laughs> okay. I know that immediately right out of the gate, you're giving, you're like, Hey, you're giving me Greek words. <laughs> we're done with the doctrine of the Trinity. Now you've introduced the doctrine of inseparable operations. Don't worry. We're going to walk through these and kind of talk about their implications kind of one by one. So let's start with unity of essence. God eternally exists as one essence. If you were looking scripturally of like, where would I go to really explore this? Well, Exodus three fourteen. When God reveals his name to Moses, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is the revelation of the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh, unity of essence. God says to him, God says to Moses, I am who I am. God eternally exists as one essence. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear therefore, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The great Shema of the Israelite tradition. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear therefore, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God eternally exists as one essence. Galatians 3, 20. Now an intermediary implies more than one but God is one. Galatians 3.20. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. God eternally exists as one essence. What are some of the implications when we think about this? Some of the implications here are monotheism. Okay, monotheism. Christians are monotheists, meaning we believe there is one God. One God. Monotheist. Okay. Now we're Trinitarian monotheists, meaning that we believe this one God eternally exists as one essence in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God. And yet there is how many gods? One God. So Christians are monotheists. But we're unique in that we're Trinitarian monotheists. So let me give you an example. Your Muslim neighbors are monotheists. Your Jewish neighbors are monotheists. You as a Christian are a Trinitarian monotheist. You're a Trinitarian monotheist. You believe that God eternally exists as one essence in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God. And yet there is how many gods? One God. So monotheism is an implication from the unity of essence. Another implication is that there is no subordination in the Godhead. Okay. Now this is really important because the probably the most widely sold systematic theology of your lifetime uh, argues that there is subordination in the Godhead, that the, the son of God subordinates eternally to God, the father, which means that the son of God has a different will than God, the father. And he lays that will down. Um, and, uh, in order to follow the will of God, the father. Now we'll talk more about this when we get to Christology in the spring, but it's important that you understand this. The unity of essence means there is no subordination in the Godhead, God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit are one essence. 
they are equal in worth, dignity, deity, and glory. So there is no distinction in worth, glory, or deity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are different relationships, which we will talk about in just a moment, but there is absolute unity as one essence or one substance. God eternally exists as one essence. There is no subordination. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal in the Godhead. There is uh, the, another implication of unity of essence is that there is one nature, one will, one power. This is the doctrine of inseparable operations, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, three in one, Trinity, has one unified will. One unified will. And that unified will is the doctrine of inseparable operations. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit cooperate together in all that they do. So they are inseparably operating. Whatever the Father does, the Son and the Spirit are involved. Whatever the Son does, the Father and the Spirit are involved. Whatever the Spirit does, the Father and the Son are involved. There is unity of divine action. So God eternally exists as one essence. This is the doctrine that of unity of essence. This is how we begin our doctrine of the Trinity. God eternally exists as one essence, one substance, usia. Now, the implications from that, monotheism, there's no subordination in the Godhead, and unity of action. One nature, one will, one power. But that's not where the doctrine of the Trinity ends. We begin with unity of essence, but we move towards the distinction of persons. Now, Augustine says it like this. Let us believe that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is one God, the creator and ruler of the universe, and that the Father is not the Son, nor the Son, the, uh, excuse me, uh, the Father is not the Son, nor the Holy Spirit, either the Father or the Son, but a trinity of persons mutually interrelated and a unity of an equal essence. Let me read that again because I messed it up. Let us believe that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is one God, the creator and ruler of the universe, and that the Father is not the Son, nor the Holy Spirit, either the Father or the Son, but a trinity of persons mutually interrelated and a unity of an equal essence. This is the distinction of persons. And it's pivotal that we move from the unity of essence um, to the distinction of persons. And this move can be described as moving from ad intra to ad extra. Okay, ad intra to ad extra. Ad intra is a Latin phrase that focuses on the interior life. So when we say ad intra, we might also say imminent or ontological views of the Godhead or Trinity. This means the interior life of God, how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit relate to one another inside of the Godhead, usually focusing on the unity of essence. Add extra perspective on the Trinity is focused on God in the history of redemption and often emphasizes the distinction of persons. Here's the role of the Father, and here's the role of the Son, here's the role of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you some examples of thinking through the distinction of persons. Maybe a great picture that you're going to find in the New Testament, a few pictures that you'd find, would be the baptism of Jesus where you have Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, fully God, fully man, um, uh, uh, two natures, one person, uh, that you, you have uh, there at the baptism of Jesus. Uh, you have Jesus being baptized. 
you have the Father pronouncing beloved, and you have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. This is a act of all members of the Godhead, but you can see the distinction of persons showcased there. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can also see this in the Great Commission call, which you're familiar with. Matthew 28 in verse 18 and following. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them with what? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Distinction of persons. If you wanted to see a Trinitarian pattern in the New Testament, something that may feel less obvious, but is very, very, I would say thick. It's very deep. Um, you could go to Ephesians chapter one and you would get a great Trinitarian pattern. Let me just give you an example. If you go to Ephesians one verses three through 11, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Hold on. I mean, even right there, we have God and father of our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. This God, the father has blessed us where in Christ Jesus with what, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I mean, that is just one verse immediately giving you a picture. But if you scroll down to verse 11, in him, this is speaking of Jesus, in him we have obtained an inheritance according, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then it says this, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with what? The promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, I mean, right there in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 11, the Apostle Paul gives the church in Ephesus a picture of the act of the Godhead, of the Trinity in salvation. God the Father has chosen his people in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has secured their salvation in his life, ministry, death, and resurrection. And the Holy Spirit is sealing that vital and necessary work. And so this is a picture of the ad intra relationships, the Godhead in and of himself, and the ad extra relationships, God as he is working in history. Now, I think it's really important when we think about our doctrine of the Trinity that we keep coming again and again and again to what is our bedrock. Okay, so we've explored the unity of essence. We've explored the distinction of persons. And even in verses 3 through 11 of Ephesians 1, you get a picture of the unity of divine action. I mean, we could have gone to the doctrine of creation and said, look, God the Father creates the world through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We could go to Revelation, God's disclosure of himself in the world. God the Father has disclosed himself in the world through the Son of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is unity of divine action. So look, here's what I want you to do. If you're following along with me via video, then I'm about to read this and I want you to read it with me. If you're listening to this via audio, I'm going to read it through two times. And on the second time, I want you to join me and just repeat after me, okay? If you're in a public place, maybe don't do that. Um, but if you're in a car or if you're listening to this on a walk or in your home and you're listening to it, I want you to, I want you to repeat after me. I want you to say it out loud. So let me read it and then we will read it together. 
God eternally exists as one essence in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God, yet there is one God. I want you to either read it with me or repeat it after me, and I'll pause at kind of every clause. God eternally exists as one essence in three distinct persons. Each of whom, I'm sorry, excuse me. <laughs> You're like, you messed it up. Uh, God eternally exists as one essence in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each of whom is fully God, and yet there is one God. So here's what we're going to do. This is the end to part one of this lecture. So I'm going to stop the recording. I'm going to stop sharing my screen here. I'm going to stop the recording. You'll be able to watch the second part of this in a different video or listen to a second part of this in a different audio. I would encourage you when you sit down to listen to part two, and there will be a part three, when you sit down to listen to part two or watch part two, that you do it all in one sitting. It'll be about 20 to 30 minutes long. All right. So we'll see you at part two.